friends, and welcome to the World Transformed. Tonight we're talking about, are you ready for a great future? My name is Phil Bowermaster, and with me in the virtual studio is my co-host, Stephen Gordon. Hello, Stephen. Hey, Phil. How are you? Well, I am super fantastic. Happy Wednesday. How are you, my friend? Man, I'm doing great, and uh, I'm ready for a great future. Let's talk about it tonight. Let's get into it. We've got John Palmer with us once again. John is a coach and speaker who's passionate about alternative energy, efficient government, and more recently, generous listening. Together with his wife, Doreen, he manages a coaching business which serves the emotional visions of expatriates returning home from overseas assignments. John's driving interest is sharing his passion that humans will continue on the path of creating a fabulous future as long as we keep our focus on creating that future and not on reporting and regurgitating the seemingly overwhelming problems that we see today. John, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much, Phil. Well, on Monday we got into climate and what we might do and what we're going to have to do in, in terms of turning that around to go from global warming to global cooling. And it seems like now on tonight's show, we're going to talk about what? Everything else, right? Uh, Pretty much. We're going to to bring it all together. So let's talk about getting to a fabulous future. And maybe let's start with why is that news, right? Why is the idea of moving to a good future an unexpected direction for people? Why is that even something that that you have to make a case for? Let me talk a little bit about that. The biggest thing is that people resist change. We all resist change. I resist change. You guys resist change. And even, even, and we're, we're, we're the change agents and the speed of change scares people because they, they see things changing around them and, and their old ways don't work and they have to adapt to new systems and they don't really see how future developments will likely benefit them and their children and grandchildren. One of the other things that happens is that we have cognitive biases that prevent us from looking at a positive future. Cognitive biases are evolutionary solutions to limited mental resources or patterns of deviation in judgment that occur in particular situations. These are important developments in our mentality that protect us. And originally, they were always beneficial, but now as humans develop away from hunter-gatherer and and limited agricultural, that some of these are not so good. I want to talk about just one as a positive development is, is our response to danger. When we're afraid, we get a rush of adrenaline, and originally it was used to either fight or flight or run away. But today, when we have fear of the future, it gives us adrenaline and we can't do anything with it. So it causes stress. So I'd like to eliminate some of that fear of the future. And the media helps with this tremendously. You mean, you mean they help with the bias. They help with the fear. Yeah. They help with the bias. (laughs) They create the fear because the media knows if it bleeds, it leads. So they're not going to talk about the promise of the future voluntarily because quite frankly, there's only a few of us geeky people that are really interested. The other, so, some of the other bias that really give, cause a problem is one of them is the future is based on the past. In 1860, New York City put together a group of people who would forecast what the country, what the city would look like in 40 years. And they took a year to study everything that was going on and decided and came back and reported to the city fathers that uh, we are sorry to report that the city will be 
dead in 20 years or 40 years. There's, we can't get rid of all the manure we have now. And as we grow, we won't be able to get more. We won't be able to provide more of it. The sewage is overrunning us. We can't, we can't get rid of the sewage and several other problems. And they just decided that the city could not survive. But they didn't know was, oh, and they were running out of whale oil. That was the, that was the one, number one thing. They were, didn't have enough whale oil, which is what provided the lighting. They didn't know about petroleum coming down the road. They didn't know about electricity coming down the road. They didn't know about gas or gas lighting. They didn't know about technical developments and sewage treatment. What don't we know about the future? I know of some of the things that are coming down the future, but I think Phil earlier said there's a huge number of things that we don't know are coming down the road. In 2003, we didn't know that, that iPhones and smartphones were coming down the road, and now look what that's done for us. So we have to allow people the freedom to understand that the past does not necessarily dictate the future. You know, I wonder if one of the big biases, when, when you talk about the cognitive biases that shape our thinking about the future, if one of them is rejection of uncertainty, if you can have a narrative that, that spells out for you what's going to happen next, how things are, how things have been, how things are going to be, and everything's in its place, that that's in some sense reassuring and it helps you to it, it, it helps you to survive, right? It helps you to, to live day to day when, in fact, and, and uncertainty feels uncomfortable, but all the possibility sits in uncertainty. It sits in all the things we don't know. We, Stephen and I talk about a, a concept we call the adjacent possible, and we talk about the hidden possible, the things that are out there, but we haven't looked for them. And if you're, if you're uncomfortable with uncertainty, then you're not going to look for them, right? You're not going to try to find those possibilities. But if you start to embrace it even just a little bit, then suddenly a, a lot of possibilities can open up for you. That's a bias that, that I don't know if it's, a, if, it's, if it's a identified cognitive bias, but it's one that, that is very, very obvious in watching the political scene develop. Right. right. The, the, the flat earthers are probably the best example of it. They think that the world's flat, and they don't—they deny everything that's coming forward, and they want the certainty that their lives are never going to change. Right? They've got a comfortable narrative, right? So, or a yeah. safe—I guess a safe narrative. Maybe that's the word. And I wonder if—I don't wonder. I'm—I propose that social media has really helped to promulgate a lot of safe narratives. That that's maybe one of the real downsides of it. Yeah, is the, that the walled garden problem, right? we build very safe worldviews for ourselves and we're not letting new stuff in. And by not letting new stuff in, we're not seeing the tremendous potential out there. If you add to that, the other biases, the fact that if it bleeds, it leads the fact that we're worried that we're frightened. Um, it seems like things even get more closed, right? The, 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 the idea well, that people are going to focus on what's good gets, it, it becomes a tougher nut to crack, doesn't it? Yes. And I, you identified probably the, the biggest uh, bias or the problem bias that we have today is the confirmation bias is that we all love yeah. to listen to and follow the things that we know. And so when we follow that, we don't see the stuff that we don't know. And, and it, and it comes to your uncertainty principle, but the confirmation bias is reinforced by our social media. When Facebook get, feeds you, the stuff that you've been listening to or reading. And when you only read the stuff that you already know about, we divide further and further. 
said the right always reads the stuff from the right and the left always reads the stuff from the left. Yep. And we think that that's our world, and it's really not. Uh, the Wall Street Journal has this thing called uh, Blue Feed, Red Feed, and I, I invite all our listeners to go take a look at it. It's side by side, the same events taking place, you get uh, a blue social media feed versus a red one. And it's it's like there are completely different realities. It's amazing. Yeah, those are some of the biases. There's there's a lot more, but I think we need to move on. Let's talk about it. If we've got if we've got the, this biased outlook, what is it preventing us from seeing? I guess that's the the question because we know how terrible things are, we, and that and that message is reinforced <laughs> for us every day. And we've got a pretty good idea about how terrible things are going to be, in in terms of we talked about climate on Monday. There's terrorism. The world faces massive overpopulation. There's this threat of economic collapse. There's wars and rumors of wars. There's the fear that our, our political system is going to collapse, that the bad guys are going to take over here or elsewhere. We've got all those narratives. So why would we get positive about the future? Why, why do you talk about the promise of the future? Well, all of these biases and the, and the media do a great job of telling us the problems today, but they don't spend much time focusing on, on the improvements we've made over the last 50 years. I'll just go through a few of those. Extreme poverty, which is people that make less than $2 a day, has dropped from 42% in 1980 to 10% today. We crossed the 10% threshold in 2016. It's an amazing statistic that people are actually thriving in an environment that 30 years ago, they were dying. Life expectancy per capita income is up dramatically in, in developing countries, sometimes as much as three or 400% in the last 15 years. The population growth rate, which was 2% in 1980, is now at 1%, and that's the worldwide population growth rate, and is forecasted to go all the way down to 0.4% by 2040. So the rate of increase in population has decreased dramatically in the last few years. Deaths from wars are lower than ever. Nobody's going to believe that, but if you go check it out, it's true. Growth in living standards continues throughout the world, and finally, that we already talked about access to information for every to for everyone. Almost everyone on the planet has access to a cell phone where they can get uh, all the encyclopedia of information available. And that uh, one kind of feeds into all of them, right? That that, that one, yeah. that one yeah. kind of helps them drive them all along. That's a great right. list, John. Thank you for stepping us through those. Those, those are awesome. We've we got to unpack some of these just a little bit because they're too good not to not to touch the the first one you mentioned extreme poverty moving from 42% in 1980 to 10% today is actually my understanding is part of a bigger trend and if you were to take it back to i think it's the year 1800 you would see something like 90% of the world population living in what we now consider to be extreme poverty, which is kind of hard to imagine, right? You, you think, well, yeah. there were different classes and different castes and all that kind of stuff, but 90% of the world was in what today we would consider to be extreme poverty, down to over 200 years down to down to 10% today. That's a pretty good trend. Yeah, 
even the richest people in the world in uh, 1800 uh, don't don't live by like our middle class today. It's it's remarkable how how much improvement the world has seen in a relatively short time. You, you mentioned access to information. It allows them to plug into the markets too, right? I mean, if if, if you're a, a guy living in the bush and you have something to sell, you can find out what market you need to take it to because you've got a you've got a smartphone or, or a friend who has one. That improves your what what price you get for whatever it is that you're selling. Things like that is have really improved the world for uh, people even in remote areas. There's a really good story out of Africa. Uh, it's, it was in Kenya. If you wanted to send money to your cousin on the other side of the country, believe it or not, this is how they did it. And this is up until three or four years ago. They would go to the bank, get a bunch of cash, put it in a bag, take it to the bus, put the name on there, and hope that the bus driver was honest enough to take the money to your cousin. Oh, geez. And now they have microfinance, and they have the ability to wire money just like we do with PayPal, something like PayPal. And the banks are not even involved in it. The, the, the banks just, there's, there's no bank involved with money transfers. You've got the same technologies that we have here in the U.S. that are operative there. And that one thing is really enlivening their economy. The cousin that would have basically stayed there and died in a famine now can buy yep. a bus ticket into the city and get a job, right? Because he, he got yep. the money. Yep. Yep. That's a, that's we, a big deal. We were talking about, I mentioned Brian Wong on the, on the Monday show. He, one of the things he was telling me about, one of the benefits for getting power into the hands of smaller outlying poor populations, particularly in the form of a, a, a smartphone connection, is that people who are doing very small-scale agriculture, they, they are produce, or they're producing something, they're producing some good, some small handcraft or something like that, they don't necessarily know where the market for it will be. So they have to go look. It's like you, you have to go to the next village over or to the next one after that or the next one after that. You'll spend a good part of your day and a good part of your time looking around seeing if you can find someone who will buy your stuff. Now they're on smartphones and they can actually call over, right? It's like instead of instead of spending two and a half hours walking to the next village, they can call someone there and look around and see if there's someone who buys it. And suddenly the economic activity has become so much more efficient. They're spending a lot less time looking around for customers and spending a lot more time producing. And it has upped their production. And, you know, it's the rising tide that lifts all ships. It, it just it brings up the whole economy that when you look at that reduction in poverty from 42 percent to 10 percent, a good deal of the most recent addition to that has probably been just the connectivity. It's just the fact that people are able to communicate with each other and they're and they're able to do what they were doing anyway, just with so much greater efficiency. Yeah, for sure. Uh, that efficiency improvement is really terrific. It's, it's, it's amazing to see that happen. The other one that caught my attention on there was the deaths from wars lower than ever. That reminds me of the Steven Pinker book. Is that where, is, is that where you got that idea, the um, Better Angels of Our Nature? Steven Pinker has written about that. Actually, that one I checked out on my own. I just wanted to find out what it was, and uh, I, did, I did the research. So where are, where are we with that? If you, if you say we've gone from extreme poverty of 42% to 10%, where are we in terms of people dying in wars? So if we look at the 1980s, let's see, this chart is built in worldwide battle deaths per 100,000. In the 1980s, early 80s, it was running around five people per 100,000 in the world. 
Okay. And that included colonial battles, interstate battles, civil wars, and civil war with foreign intervention. In the 1970s, it was up to six and seven. In the 90s, it dropped down to around two. In the 2000s, the chart doesn't go that low. It's less than one. Wow. That did have a blip up in 2015 to one, one one to one and a half. But to your earlier point, what we do have today is what we've improved or increased is media coverage, right? So we're so much more aware of the losses that do occur that it seems like there are more when, in fact, that has improved tremendously. The the one thing that has changed uh, that didn't used to occur is the people fleeing their countries and uh, Mm. the the number of refugees. And I think in a large part, that effect has changed from previous years that people have a choice to go someplace, whereas 30, 40, 50 years ago, they didn't couldn't go anywhere else. And so we've got this huge refugee problem that results from our increase in mobility. But but it's better than war casualties for sure. All right, so let's let's turn it let's turn it future facing. When we look at the improvements that have occurred, it seems that one major outstanding issue that we've still got to face is the idea of scarcity. We're still up against a world that doesn't deliver everything that we need. Where are we with that? So when I want to ask the audience if maybe we can change the definition of scarcity from the old definition of the state of being in short supply to a new definition as the condition of a resource that has not yet been liberated to demonstrate abundance. I want to say that again. It's a little bit arcane, but it's a condition of a resource that has not yet been liberated to demonstrate abundance. Let me talk a little bit about that. What has become abundant in your lifetime, basically, or maybe our lifetimes? Well, television was in scarce supply when it first came out in the 1950s. But now almost everybody in the U.S. has two or more. The Internet or access to information was limited to going to the library. I know I did all of my research in the library, and now everything can be done over the Internet. That is abundant. So information has gone from a limited resource to an abundant resource. Access to medicine worldwide is increasing on a daily basis. Whereas when penicillin first came out in the 40s, you couldn't even get it. And it was very expensive. Cars, satellites, etc. Everything is becoming abundant. And as we go through the future, things will be more abundant. And one of the driving forces behind all of the changes that we've seen in the last 15 to 20 years has been exponential progression. I'm sure you guys talk a lot about Moore's Law. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Moore's Law says that the speed of computers will increase, will double every year. Is that the, is that the amount? I can't remember whether it is. I think uh, that the, the amount of processors you can fit on a chip will double every 18 months is the technical definition yeah. of Moore's Law. But it's, it's actually faster than that now. Exponential change, if you can get into a... Uh, uh, business that's changing exponentially, you're going to have to fight to to keep up with it. And that's one of the things that is developing in in a lot of things that are improving for the future, including energy and uh, food and everything else. Okay. Why don't we stop there and we'll pick it up on our Friday show and let's talk a little bit about what the future is going to look like 
in, a, in an mm-hmm. abundant world on several of these dimensions. But I think that's a great idea. All right. Well, thanks for being with us, John. Stephen, great talking with you. We will be back on Friday to conclude our week with John Palmer. And until next time, live to see it. Mm-hmm.